I've probably got more experience and I've seen mountain bike change more than anyone else from the real early days of pretty informal racing and hiking boots to uh, the super high technology. Hey podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo, welcome to episode 114 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's talking about the good old days. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist. And you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash V-A-M. And yes, we are starting with a review today to get us under Underway, amazing five stars by Law Dog 101 from the UK. Superb, unsurpassed on every level. Subscribe, list, implement, enjoy the results, and enrich your cycling. Truly amazing. Damien should be compulsory listening for any aspirational cyclist. Law Dog, I am super humbled by those words. I really appreciate you taking the time to write them. And if you do like the show, I would love a review on iTunes or Stitcher because five stars makes me go... Thank you very much. Now, the performance probe this week and probe number one, the athlete's identity. Should you really call yourself an athlete anymore? It is an interview with Chris Carmichael about the role of identity in keeping athletes engaged in sport and how a person's identification as an athlete evolves over time and as the result of changes in the person's age, career, family life, etc. And this is something that I personally think about because I've gone part of the way through this journey. And it's not limited, though, to experienced athletes because Someone that's new to cycling or any sport in general may not self-identify as an athlete at all. And I guess while I'm thinking about this, a cyclist to me is an athlete. So for me, I have to have a certain level of fitness or confidence or just feel like I'm in a place where my body can accept the stress that I'm putting on on it and I will feel like a cyclist. And that is to me when I feel like an athlete. So Whether you identify with that or how you actually label yourself as a cyclist or just someone that rides bikes, I think people do struggle with this and it does change as your activity level changes, as your fitness level changes, and also as your competitiveness may slip away. All of these things form the identity of you as an athlete. And if you've been an athlete for more than a few years, you've most likely experienced some of the situations that are talked about in this interview. And that's where I find it interesting. I'm just going to pick out a couple of the questions and answers. There are a whole bunch more in the actual article itself, but these were a couple of more of the interesting ones. What are some warning signs that the title of athlete a person is holding onto isn't actually doing his body any favors? There's an athlete in everybody, 
even if a person hasn't been in touch with their inner athlete for a long time. And within reason, I encourage people to challenge themselves wherever possible, even if it's just on weekends, because your body will only adapt in a positive direction in response to challenges. Of course, it's that within reason aspect that trips people up. It's not wise to jump into competitions without training, and it's easy for your competitive drive to write checks that your body can't cash. Overall, however, I never want to see a person give up on that image of being an athlete because once that identity is gone, it can be difficult to stay motivated and active. It's better to be an athlete in waiting than to decide you're no longer an athlete at all. How can someone who was once a high-level athlete find something that they liked to do as much as they loved their sport? The easiest way is to get back into the sport you loved in the first place. These days, there aren't many sports which are restricted to young people, and these are age group competitions for just about any sport you could have participated in in high school or college. If for some reason you can't, then consider what it was that you liked most about the sport and look for that component in other activities. For instance, if you liked the solitude and rhythm of running, you might like cycling or rowing, or if it was the camaraderie of volleyball, then solo sports may not be what you're looking for. And the final question here, for the person whom fitness and competition go hand in hand, do you have suggestions? Absolutely. Compete. The worst thing you can do is suppress or dismiss your competitive drive. It doesn't go away, and I think it breeds resentment and bitterness when you can't find a productive outlet for it. Fortunately, these days, there are so many age group competitions in such a wide variety of sports that it's becoming easier for people to find appropriate channels for their competitive ambitions. The second probe is the 2014 Power Meter Buyer's Guide by DC Rainmaker and in typical Raymaker style it is in depth and it covers much more than just what power meters are available. For me it is the best guide available to help you make a decision on which power meter to buy because it covers various options in terms of features and usability info on buying used power meters and even a comprehensive comparison chart. It seems we are again on the edge of promises from companies after conference season so this information really is for you if you want to buy a power meter today. He has listed the unreleased models and their release dates, but these aren't guaranteed. But a part of me does think that the companies that have made announcements in the last two or three months are aware of failed promises of companies from the past. So I'm sure that one or two of them will be closer to delivery than ever before. I even believe that part of them will be manufacturing already and you will get the power meters when they were promised. He does end with this though. So what should you buy? At the end of the day, there is no single right answer to this question. There's only best answers for a given individual situation. I've tried to outline all the major pros and cons of each unit on the market and in simple language whether or not I'd purchase it or 
purchase it again. The landscape will continue to change as I noted in the above sections that there's a raft of three plus power meters on the way before next spring in the northern hemisphere. Thus, if you aren't in a hurry to have one before spring, then it quite frankly doesn't make sense to buy one before then. I do, however, think we'll continue to see pricing shifts, especially amongst higher-end units. That's simply inevitable as more players enter the market and fight for your cash. But don't expect those shifts to occur until 4i actually starts shipping. There's no reason for other companies to charge less when they know they can keep selling at higher prices until 4i actually ships. It is interesting that he points out 4i here because not only is 4i breaking the paradigm for price, but for accuracy as well. So my final question to you is, what power meter are you going to buy? Alrighty then, the nuts and bolts this week and... We're talking pacing and performance measurement using VAM or VAM. I actually toyed with the idea of calling this episode Wham Bam, Thank You Vam, but anyway. It's cycling and climbing today, looking through the VAM filter, and the concept of VAM helps us understand and quantify cycling performance and can be a useful tool to help you improve your own cycling performance. This topic actually goes quite deep and gets a little murky and controversial in parts, but I'm not here to discuss the merits of the metric. Well, not really. I am here to explain the concept of VAM and how to use it to understand your cycling climbing. VAM is the abbreviation for the Italian term, and I know I'm going to butcher this, Velocita Ascension Media. That is painful. I am very sorry for Italian listeners. But in English, it's translated approximately to average ascent speed or mean ascent velocity. We're just going to refer to it as VAM. You can think about it as your vertical component of speed. The term itself was coined by Italian physician and cycling coach Michele Ferrari It is the speed of elevation gain usually stated in units of meters per hour. So the calculation looks like this. Vertical height gain divided by the time taken in hours. So we're talking meters divided by hours. And let's take an example of Mount Wellington in Tasmania. It takes anywhere between 45-46 minutes to an hour to climb depending on how fit you actually are. If we do the calculation, we have to look at firstly the total elevation gain. So at the top of the mountain, it's 1,270 meters. At the start, it's 148 meters. So we minus the meters at the start from the meters at the top, and we get a total elevation gain of 1,123 meters. The other part is how long it takes to do the actual climb. And we have to break this down to hours. So we take the minutes, and in this case, let's say 54 minutes, divide by 60. So you have 1,123 divided by 0.9, which gives you a VAM of 1,358. And Ferrari also 
says that you can multiply the threshold power to weight ratio by 300 and get a pretty good approximation of a rider's VAM. And I have done that, and it comes out as 1,455. So it's not that close. It is kind of in the ballpark, but when you're talking optimization at those top levels, it's not that close. If we take another example of a different rider that has a faster time, Around 46 minutes or so, we take 1,123, we divide it by 0.78, and we get a higher VAM of 1,566. So this is the rate of meters in vertical that can be climbed in an hour for this rider. So these are both pretty solid numbers, and and we will look at some numbers of some professional cyclists, but we have to put these numbers into context, and they were the first stage of a tour. So the riders themselves were quite fresh. I think it would be very different when you're looking at a pro, because a pro is doing it in the context of a major event, say like the Tour de France, whereas these were on their own. And it is a great way to make comparisons of riders at the top of their game across different eras. And I have some examples here where it is used controversially, because we will go through, and you are able to come out with. A watts per kilogram in this equation. So this is where it is actually making comparisons against suspected doping, and in some cases now it's proven that these riders did dope. But let's talk about the infamous Alpe d'Huez. And if we look at the best VAM that has been done on the Alpe d'Huez, Marco Pantani in 1997 hit 1,741. Where Armstrong in 2001 hit 1,721, so very, very close. Carlos Sastra in 2008. This was when it was considered that cycling was moving slightly past that doping culture of around that late 90s, early 2000s time, where he did 1,656 up Alpe d'Huez. If we go before this entire period, back to the 80s and 1986, Bernard Hinault and Greg LeMond did 1,363. So you can see, in this case, it is a useful tool to see the comparison between these different eras. If you've climbed Alpe d'Huez or any of the mountains that Grand Tours go through, then it's a pretty cool way for yourself to make a comparison between you and the pros, but. I'm not actually too interested in that because it doesn't help you with your own performance over time and measuring it, unless you are a pro in training and I'm helping you get there. But at the top of the list of notable VAM scores is David Rebellion, and on the Murderhoy in the Flesh Wallone, his VAM is 2,531, and that is super duper high. But It's not a long climb, and this is a hint to the first consideration that we must make when using VAM as a personal comparison tool. So, if you are going to compare VAM scores, you need to look at the length of the climb and really keep that into consideration, because across the same climb, you could just use time. That's the simplest way that you could just use time if you were doing the same climb. But because this is a comparison metric where we're trying to compare performance across different climbs, this is part of what we Need to consider. We also need to consider that steeper climbs will give you a higher VAM compared to lower percentage gradients. 
So it's not that you can just take any two mountains from anywhere and make a comparison. You really need to think about exactly how close they are to matching up in gradient and in length. So if we are thinking about measuring your own personal progress, for example, if you climb a hill during a tour of the Alps one year and you calculate your VAM based on a certain climb, and then the next year when you hit the Dolomites in a tour and you ride a similar quality hill, you can actually see how you improved through VAM. And it's not just the improvement, though. You can actually start to get an idea of which gradients or what type of rhythm you like in the climb and what suited you based on how high your VAM is for a particular type of climb. Because if you're at the same level of fitness in one month and you ride a few different types of hills and one type over another comes out as a higher VAM, that may be the type of hill that actually suits you best. We have, up until this point, spoken about VAM in isolation and And what I want to talk about now is power. And of course, power is the best way to measure progress. And hands down, I still believe that it's the best way to measure progress across years, across different time periods and varying terrains. It's perfect for that. So VAM helps when you don't have a power meter. And it also helps when you want to look at other riders' performances without knowing their power numbers. And what it always comes down to in power is watts per kilogram. So to get the relative measure of watts per kilogram, you take VAM and divide it by gradient factor, and then you times it by 100. What is a gradient factor? I hear you screaming into your own brain. 2 plus the percentage of gradient divided by 10. I'm going to have this written out in the show notes, but also... At the end of the nuts and bolts, I have a really easy way for you to calculate this stuff. I'm just going through it so you kind of understand a bit of the working behind it. It is simple math. There is nothing complicated about this. But if you want to get watts per kilogram, and if we use the first rider from the example that I've already mentioned, then let's talk about the VAM, 1,123, divided by the gradient factor times 100, which comes out to be 200.68. So this figure for watts per kilogram for this climb up Mount Wellington is estimated based on this model at 4.84 watts per kilogram with a output of 310 watts. I have the real figures here so we can see a comparison and in reality the rider rode 4.85 watts per kilogram at 312 watts. So that is very close. That estimation is super close. It's about as close as you will ever get. And there's the second rider, which was mentioned in the example from earlier. And through the same calculation, but with their data, the estimation is 5.71 watts per kilogram or 377 watts total output for the climb. In reality, their climb was 5.5 watts per kilogram at 363 watts. So not so close, but again, it's fairly similar. So the error rate with this very small sample size isn't that great. So I want you to start thinking about this when it comes to deciding whether you will use this, but we'll get into that in just a moment. So of course, figuring out the watts per kilogram is the murky area that scientists go back and forth on when comparing the professionals in the Tour de France every year. And it's handy for that comparison, but really for your own, it is 
super handy to try and figure out where your competitors may be at and what you may have to ride in order to be competitive in your grade at certain types of events. But there are other uses for this though and this is where it starts to get really interesting because if we combine VAM and power it becomes very powerful, excuse the pun. The cool thing is that you can actually get VAM displayed in real time on a Garmin. I'm sure other computers do it, but I just know for sure that Garmin units actually do display this. So while power can tell you what you can sustain, it doesn't tell you how long a ride will actually take. And rather than working backwards with the calculation I've already mentioned, you can use power to work out a sustainable VAM. And a sustainable VAM is something that you could use as a measure or a marker for you to keep an eye on when you're riding a certain event. And it's similar to the way you would use a threshold or a power number to pace yourself, except you're using this on climbs. So not only do you know how fast to go, but you also have a good estimate of how long it will take if you stick to this exact number. So this, for example, could be based on one number like FTP, or it could be based on a range of numbers in a certain zone, say zone three, for example, you could have an upper and a lower limit that you could calculate. So you just have to take whatever this power number is that you want to sit in or on, your weight and an average gradient of the climbs that you will ride during the day. So for example, going back to Mount Wellington, if you wanted to ride up it at 330 watts, you weighed 64 kilograms and the average gradient is 6.8%, then a sustainable VAM of 1,436 would be what you would try to sit on in order to get up the hill without going above your threshold limit. And the cool thing is actually that you can play around with this equation and you can actually figure out how long it will take in an estimation to get up climbs. So you can do this by taking the total elevation gain of a climb and divide it by the sustainable VAM that you've worked out already, and it would give you a rough idea how long the climb will take. Taking our original example, Mount Wellington, again, meters gained divided by sustainable VAM, so time as a percentage of 60 minutes, which is times 60 which works out to be 1,123 divided by 1,436 VAM that we just worked out, and it works out at around 47 minutes, which would have been the ideal time based on where the rider could potentially ride the entire hill. In reality, it turned out that the time was 54 minutes, so there was a bit of a difference. But again, it's just an estimation tool for different reasons for training etc but if you're going to do this for a large event then you would do all of the work before you start so you know how long you will be on each climb it helps when planning training and getting in the right place mentally because you want to set yourself up for a long climb and if you're climbing for an hour and a half for example it takes a bit of preparation to get the best out of that climb and knowing the actual length in time is really really handy for pacing yourself and you can do this on the fly as well if you are out riding and you want a rough idea of how long a climb will take just 
take the meters gained that you see, so whether you see a sign with the top and you see where you are on your Garmin, and then divide it by your sustainable van, which if you just had a figure in your head of on an average ride of what that sustainable van should be, it will give you a rough idea of how long it will take to get up a climb. Again, this is for mental preparation, but also for nutritional reasons. So you can actually have an energy intake and you don't fall short before you get to the top of the climb. So we have been talking a lot about how good this metric is. And I did kind of touch on there's a bit of controversy when scientists start comparing pros and then they start talking about doping in sport or whatever. But outside of that, there is some limitations. And it doesn't take into account the aerodynamic elements that occur when you're on the bike, out in the environment, out on the road. And there are other environmental elements like wind and drafting, rolling resistance and altitude. Altitude is actually one of those ones that is quite important because climbing from sea level to 1,000 meters is going to give you a much higher VAM than climbing from, say, 1,600 meters to 2,500 meters. And also, like I've mentioned before, the gradient itself has a significant VAM influence. And the higher the gradient percentage, the higher the VAM values developed by the riders. I hope you've got the idea that it's not perfect, but for you to use it or implement it in your own cycling, I would first look at the validity with your data that you already have and start thinking about the decision of whether it's useful or not in your writing based on that data. So you can make comparisons, kind of like I made comparisons between the model data and the real data, or between different writers. And starting with power meter users, look at the percentage difference between the actual and the data. And that will help to make a decision whether you believe it's going to help you believe it's accurate enough for you to use. And if you are going to use it to measure performance sans power meter, then this isn't so important, but you don't want to waste your time on something complicated if you could just use time if you're practicing on the same hill. But I do think it's kind of one of those fun metrics you can play around with if you don't have a power meter, because who doesn't love extra numbers to try and decipher how they're going and how they're progressing in their cycling? So maybe if you don't have a power meter, then you can do some calculations with your data and see if the number has improved over time and how you can make predictions or set goals based on this number and whether you think those would be accurate in the future. By the way, VAM is not perfect on Strava. It does show the number on Strava, but because elevation numbers may be incorrect from the GPS of the rider that set the segment, you should double-check the numbers before you sign off on a VAM and think that it's going to be correct. And I did say that there was going to be an easy way to calculate this. I've got a link in the show notes to a website that has a very simple calculator that helps you calculate this. And it's easy just to plug in the numbers, hit calculate. You can play around with a few different elements to come up with an exact figure. It'll give you outputting wattages. It'll give you estimated watts per kilogram. And it will really quickly give you an idea of how useful for this is. And I'm interested in your application of this. If you actually use this for intelligence or you use this to measure over time, how have you actually implemented this in your training? If you've heard of this before 
I mentioned it on the show. I'm really curious because I like the metric, but I'm still trying to figure out the best way to do it because there are, of course, different pacing strategies that you can use, and I haven't strictly implemented this one just yet. Okay, let's get to the tech hacks and product section, and this week it's a product from 4i, my favorite company that I love to hate on their name, but they are coming out with some solid products. This isn't the precision power meter that I spoke about earlier. This is the Viva Mini. And the Viva Mini is a heart rate monitor, but it's a wrist strap. And I have brought up a competitor in the past, but this has a couple of neat features, which which actually sold me, and I have pre-ordered one. They are due to be shipped on December 10th, and I'll tell you the features. Firstly, getting rid of the chest strap and putting an optical heart rate sensor on my arm is going to be a lot easier for me. The second one is that it's a bridge between Ant Plus and Bluetooth. So I'll send an Ant Plus signal from my power meter to the watch. It will convert that to Bluetooth and send the signal to my phone. But at the same time, it'll still be able to send an Ant Plus signal to my Garmin so I can record in two places. And speaking of recording, this is the third feature that sold me and it actually automatically saves dot fit files in the actual unit so dot fit files are just a standard garmin file but the cool thing is if your battery goes dead on your garmin or on your phone then you still have the file to upload to your computer later this is an absolute lifesaver there have been lots of incidents where riders that i coach or myself the battery fails so you can't see the display and it's not actually recording what's going on so having the ability to pull a file out when that happens and you don't have to estimate the training load or any parts of the ride that is probably the number one feature for me but also the bridge and wearing it on my hand are absolute game changers and i'm really looking forward to this product And now that quote from the top of the show, it's Ned the Lung Overend, MTB legend. He has been on the show before, but this time he's got some great advice. But before we get into that, I thought it was funny in this clip because this clip is from 1991 and he's talking about super high technology. While you look at the clip the same time he's talking about this, they point out Canties and Metal Matrix Composite that Specialized was famous for. Pretty funny stuff to me, but I'm sure in 20 years' time, everyone's going to be laughing at us with some crazy technology we're using now. Here are some simple but important words that he had to say about training and racing from back in 1991. Guy may have a high VO2 max, but if he if doesn't have a high ability to suffer you know, for four months of the year, you know, he's not going to be able to tax that VO2 max. So, uh, I mean, I like to think that through frame of mind and through the right uh, conditioning and stuff, and it's conditioning learned over, you know, over 15 years of racing in one sport or another, um, how to take care of my body, how to, how to push myself, how to prepare myself for a, a good session of suffering, which is what these races are, you know, with the, again, you know, that's kind of a, a frame of mind. Um, I like to think that that's had a lot to do with, with my success. It's different than a guy who works a regular nine-to-five job. Um, in the winter, I get to spend a lot of quality time with the family, and actually, uh, during the summer, I need to fit in as much quality family time as possible. At the end of the year, I'll evaluate whether I have the physical ability to develop the fitness to race so that I can win major races, and also whether I have the mental enthusiasm to keep pushing myself to train, race, travel throughout the summer for the following year. 
And if I've got both of those and someone will pay me to do it, then uh, I'll continue to race the next year. And that's it. You have been listening to the Semi-Pro Performance Podcast. Remember to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash VAM to find any links or calculations used in this week's episode or visit semiprocycling.com forward slash coaching for more information on our coaching packages. But till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. (laughs) 